James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works... And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works. Is dead. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you say that your word is active and it's alive. And that it will accomplish whatever you set it out to accomplish. So, Father, I ask you to give me clarity of thought and to present your word well. And I pray for the hearers that you would open up their minds and their hearts and their ears to hear your voice today. Father, I ask you to call us deeper into a relationship with you and deeper into a love relationship with humanity. Father, thank you for inviting us into the ministry of reconciliation. We love you and we glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so about five, six days before I was was getting married, I was on the way to uh, the jewelry store. And uh, because I had Sarah's ring made, I drew it up and everything. We didn't order it from a magazine. I drew it and sent it in. And so I had like five days left to go pick it up because if I needed to make any changes, then I was to give it back to them. So they had time to do that. And so uh, I am at the corner to where I am supposed to turn to go down the road to the jewelry store. And uh, like a good driver would do, I'm sitting on a red light. I look both ways and I see a truck, an old white truck approaching the intersection, but he's in the far lane. And so as I look, I, with my wonderful depth perception, decide I got this. So I go ahead and I turn and I turn extremely tight. And the next thing I know, I am setting in, uh, smashed up against a brick wall of a restaurant. I jump out of the car, run into the restaurant and notice that the ceiling all the way, I hit it so hard that the ceiling was cracked all the way around. So I thought that's going to be a nice bill. Um, then by the time I realized what had happened, I, I ran outside and I saw a gentleman laying on the ground with an ambulance and uh, probably 14, 15-year-old girl standing with him. And I've got five days to my wedding. So I walk over to uh, the police officer, and all he does is ask me for my insurance. I give him my insurance. I go on my way. I go pick up the ring. We get married, go on our honeymoon, come back, and I've got a letter in the mail saying that this gentleman wants to sue me. Um, I had never dealt with anything like that, so I called my insurance, and really what they told me was... No worries to you except that you might get dropped from your insurance because what they're suing you for, your insurance company is going to cover. 
So, I mean, that, that was a little bit of a relief. So, never done this before. They hired their attorney. My insurance hired our attorney. And I went in to get questioned. And I was, I wanted to, in, inside of me, I wanted to kind of make something up. Yes, I know where he was and, and all this stuff. But I had to just, I had to be honest. I said, here, here's what I can tell you. When I looked, I remember where the vehicle was. And that's all I remember. I don't, I don't know how fast he was going. I don't know if maybe I did slip out in the next lane. I don't think I did, but I guess it's possible, which I don't think you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to be more confident when you're talking to your attorney, but, but I, just, I didn't want to lie about it. And so um, he says, great, and he uh, sends me on my way. And as these things, they, they take a while to, to process. About six months later, I get a letter in the mail that says, Mr. Hansen, we just want to inform you that your case has been dropped. Congratulations, everything is fine. That's all I knew. We never went to court or anything. So being curious, I called uh, the attorney and I said, well, you know, I just, I'd like to know what happened because the last I talked to you, this was a done deal. We were getting sued. You were going to pay. It was that clear cut. I mean, it looked extremely evident that this was my fault. I turned on a red. He was going through an intersection on the green. And he said, well, here's what happened. Though your story was honest, it did nothing for you. It didn't prove anything. But when we, when we called in uh, the, the gentleman who was driving the truck and the girl who was set next to them, we called them in separately, and their stories didn't match. And so it kind of discredited everything that they had set up to that point that made it look like everything was your fault. You with me? Even though all the evidence pointed towards me, the fact that those two people couldn't align their stories, it discredited everything. And what we have here in James today is a foundational text that if not understood right, discredits the rest of the Bible. You know, we we believe that the word is inerrant, that there is no contradiction in Scripture. But James takes this, if we don't understand it right, to such a level that it looks like he contradicts Paul completely. In fact, it looks like he contradicts Jesus and everybody else. In the Bible, and that James is standing up and making a newfound religion. And so, if we don't get this right, if we don't get this text right, then it completely changes the trajectory on how we read this verse. In other words, we're left with three options depending on how we understand this statement. Number one, we read it like my case was read and realize we have two contradicting stories, so the rest of the Bible is junk and we can throw it out. Or, we're left with a systematic approach on how to gain salvation. Or James is saying something completely different. So what we're going to do is, for those who have heard me speak before, I, th- I think you know this, more than, what's, what's important to me as a speaker, more than you showing up to, to uh, worship service and hearing a great message that you're going to get a point and walk away and forget by rush hour Monday, what I would rather you do is take some skills home on how to study the Bible deeply when we run into problem text. So that what you get on Sunday is not a Sunday thing, but it's something you can do on your own. So let's, let's just go ahead and go there. Here's the problem text that looks like James or James versus Paul. James says in verse 24 of chapter 2, he says this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Here's why that's a problem. Because number one, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that part of our belief statement is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Jesus alone, not by anything we do. And then on top of that, Paul actually says in Romans 3.21, 
through 4.12 and Galatians 5.6 to sum it up. He says that we are justified by faith alone apart from works. But James right here, let me say it again, says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the question is, how do you deal with verses that seem contradictory in the text? We could choose a couple things. We could use logic. And if we use logic, which is not always bad, well, then I'm going to look at the world around me. And what the world around me tells me is that my value or my reward or earnings is based on how hard I work. And so what it would say, what logic would tell me is what James is saying is right and not Paul. We could use the most common uh, use for, for studying the Bible, and that's preference or opinion. In other words, we already have a point of view and we just look text up to back up what we believe. So that's, that's another option. The, the third option is to throw it out. Or the next option is this. Is what does Scripture have to say about Scripture? In other words, how does Scripture explain itself? And so what we would do in a text like this is we have to look at which way do the scales tip. Like if we were to look at all the passages on salvation... We have to ask ourselves, do, is what we find in the Bible, do we find scales tipping in the way that actually does say, no, 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 you are saved by what you do. You are saved by how you perform. Or do we find the scales tipping in such a way, this is no, it has nothing to do with what you do. It, has, it only has to do with the fact of God's grace on us and the faith he grants us to believe. And so to, to save us the time, what we find scripturally is that the scales weigh extremely heavy on the side of that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. In fact, I think it's Ezekiel. I might be wrong on this. But I think he even says that our best works are nothing more than filthy rags. So if you take all the scriptures and you put them on one side of the scale that says we're saved by grace and one that says we're saved by works, what we find is we have very, very little evidence it says that we are saved by what we do. So the next thing we got to ask ourselves, after we've, we've looked at the entire context of Scripture, is what does the author actually say? Does the author actually say something else about salvation? And so what we find is if we read it the way we think it reads, then it looks like James is contradicting, his, contradicting Jesus, he's contradicting Paul, but really as we dig into it, we find out that James might be a little schizo. That he might be contradicting James. For those who were here a couple weeks ago, I did a, uh, I did a message at the, end of, at the end of James. It was 119 through 25, where James actually, before he launches into this, the rest of this book on good works, he takes some time and he dives in extremely deep and uses some words that bring a lot of gravity to the fact that we are saved by God's word to us and that's it. Then, and Brandon spoke this last week, in James 2, 5, this is what James says. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Here's the line or the phrase and heirs of the kingdom. Now, what are heirs? What are people who inherit things? You, You with me? Okay. if you get something for what you do, you're not a heir, are you? You're a wage earner. Right. You don't get paid at your job for who you are. You don't show up and say, da-da, it's me, and they write you a check. You earn it, and they pay you a wage. But an 
heir or an inheritance is given to you based off of who you are. And so what James is already saying twice before we even get to this text is that your salvation, your saving faith has been granted to you by grace through faith. So, what do we do with the problem text now that we've, we've reached this point? Let me preface it with this. What, what we're about ready to do, you can only do after you've allowed Scripture to interpret Scripture. Because if we launch into logic immediately, all of a sudden the Bible becomes a relativistic text and I get to make it mean whatever I want it to mean. You with me? So, the word here uh, that's up for debate is justified. Now, we know this through our own English language, and when you study the Greek, you learn this here. But the, when it comes to language, when it comes to words, when you begin to look at the etymology of a word, here's what you find. A word always has its original meaning, and it has its common use meaning. We know this, right? Like the word cool. If I were to go out today and look at one of your cars, and I said, that's a cool car, Lord knows I'm not talking about its temperature. Because it's about as hot as it can be. But we all know what the original meaning of the word cool is. It has to do with temperature. Or the word awful. If you were to walk in today and said, I asked you how you're doing, and you said, awful. I don't think you're communicating that you are full of awe and wonder. Maybe. But that's the original meaning of the word awful. It's someone who is full of awe and wonder. But what I would take it to mean is that you, you, you're, you're disappointed, you're down on your luck or something like that. So, so in other words, we have, the, we have the original meaning and we have the common use meaning of a word. And I think, I think this is what we're getting into with James. Because the, the original meaning for the word justified is to be made right through pronouncement or declaration by another means. Which would really line up with what Paul is saying. That we have been made right... Not by anything we've done, but by God's pronouncement on us, the other means being Christ's sacrifice. But the, but the common use meaning for the word uh, justified is to... Okay, so the original meaning is to be made right. The common use meaning is to prove to be made right. Does that make sense? In, in other words, to, to justify something is to make it right. Because it wasn't right before. But justified in the sense of the common use meaning, it means to prove something has already been made right. So what it looks like James is saying, instead of saying, hey, here's a four-point plan on how to get saved, what he's saying is that a lot of you are walking around being able to point back to the day you said the prayer, you went to the altar, you did whatever, whatever, and saying, hey, here's, here's how I can prove I'm justified. And James is saying, no, no, no. I want to show you how you really prove that you've been justified. I want to show you what would be in place in your life if God had justified you. You with me? Now, this is the text. This is the, this is the text that made Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, to throw it out. And because Martin Luther, history tells us he had a little bit of a temper, couldn't get beyond the text, he failed to study it out. But his, one of his disciples, Philip Melanchthon, uh, he, he actually said this about the text. Um, in, in thinking about Paul and James, he says that Paul says, or when you put these two together, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith 
that remains alone. So in, in summary, I think this is in your notes. Paul is saying that we have been made right through and by faith in Jesus. Paul is saying that we have been made right through and by faith in Jesus. And James is saying that those who have truly been made right are proven to be by a life of works. Paul is saying that we have been made right through and by faith in Jesus. And James is saying that those who have truly been made right are proven to be by a life of works. And then James kind of launches into really four signs. He gives us two insufficient signs that people would point to and say, hey, look, I've got both of these in my life. That must mean I've got saving faith. And James is going to go out on a limb and say, no. And then he's going to turn around and say, if you really have saving faith, actually, these are the two things that are going to be present in your life. So, the insufficient signs. Number one is sound doctrine. James actually says this. He goes, you believe God is one. I think personally because he's a Jew speaking to the Jews, he's actually pointing to the Shema. Which, which in other words, if, if you are a person who has studied theology and I use the phrase, um, we are saved by grace through faith alone, some of us who haven't studied theology just hear that phrase. Others of us who have studied theology, we hear a whole bunch of other things. The Shema was this saying that the Jews would get up and say, and inside of this one little phrase, pack their entire belief system. So they didn't have to spend several hours telling you what they believed. They just said this, and it talked about their devotion to God, and everybody knew that's what it was. And I think James is getting up as a Jew, speaking to, to Jewish Christians, saying, even you say that you believe this. And then he goes on to say, basically, but just because you say you believe it, just because you have the sound doctrine, good for you, but it really doesn't qualify you to be any more than a demon. You can't really hang your hat on it. Now, he's not saying sound doctrine's bad. I mean, because Paul tells Timothy, you need to teach your people doctrine. But James is saying, if that's all you've got to show for it, wonderful. You've got the qualifications for a demon. And that's it. And then he goes on, and he says, uh, so the, the first one is sound doctrine, the next one is respect and awe. He says the demons believe in shudder. Shudder here literally means to be struck with extreme fear or to be terrified. In other words, here's what he'd say. So you come to church and you worship and you get the goosebumps down your back and you raise your hands and tears fall down? Well, the demons get a little freaked out when they're around God too. So, maybe you weren't just claiming sound doctrine, but now, I feel him. Wonderful. Still, you're only qualified to be a demon. Now, when you read through the text, there are several texts that tell us to fear God, to respect God. Right? We see a lot of examples of people who, when they're in his presence, they, they feel God. They're moved by him. They fall flat on their face in respect and awe. But James is saying, if that's all you've got, that's it. 
You're still no better off than a demon. In summary, I think this is in your notes. While having sound doctrine and respect and awe are good, it doesn't prove you have saving faith. It just means you have the same qualifications as a demon. So then he launches into two significant signs. He's saying, okay, while those are good, and here, I'll I'll even go to this far to say this. If you are someone who has saving faith, you will be growing in sound doctrine and you will be growing in respect and awe. But someone who is growing in sound doctrine and respect and awe doesn't necessarily mean they have saving faith. So he launches into two other sufficient signs. He's saying, okay, if these two aren't it, here are the two that are it. And he gives us two, the the first one, he gives us two examples. The first one is, uh, the first sufficient sign is true trust and affection. He's saying that if you really have saving faith, if you really have a faith that is moving you closer and closer to Christ, you are not just going to have respect and awe, but you are going to have a trust and an affection that allows you to move further and further away from the things in your life that have gripped you. And he uses two examples. First one he uses is Rahab. Actually, the second one he uses. He says, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, I went back and studied the story of Rahab because I was like, well, yeah, that doesn't look like she was just justified by works. And that doesn't say anything about faith. But when you go back and study this out, what you have is you have these two spies who are going to check the land out. Okay? And they, they, they find Rahab. How they did that, I don't know, but whatever. Um, I mean, she was a prostitute, and so, you know. So, uh, maybe it was a lot of work. And then so, um, they get there, and Rahab begins to tell them what she has heard about their God. In other words, here's what she's saying. I have heard the gospel. I have heard the message, and it has gripped me at a soul level. And then she begins to make plans on how to protect them. So, in other words, just like we said earlier, what she did for them was the fruit of what she already began to believe. But, but it, history even tells us, it even goes a little deeper than this. Because of where uh, archaeologists tell us Rahab was probably placed on the wall where her house was or her whatever was, was probably in a very poor part of the city. And, and because of what we know that the two spies promised her that uh, if you don't say anything, we'll save you and your family. What we can assume from that, and we know this historically based off the way prostitution worked in, some, in the poor places, is that Rahab picked up a life of prostitution to supply for her family. Because her family was so impoverished that they couldn't make it unless she do this. Are, are you with me? And so... Basically, all of her identity and all of her possible future for her family was wrapped up in the fact of what she did, prostitution. And she knew by protecting these servants of Yahweh, by sending them on their way, that she was taking her identity and her possible future and putting it at risk. Because if anybody got word of this, Not only did she lose her job, 
She probably lost her life and her family's life. But what James is saying is that when the gospel takes root in you, when it grabs a hold of you, unlike some emotion you receive at church, unlike some doctrine you read, but when the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ takes root in you, it begins to move you to a point that your identity and your future are found in him, not in what used to define you. And you are willing to leave those behind because he is enough. Are, are you with me? It didn't matter anymore that she might die. It didn't matter anymore that her identity would be gone. It didn't matter anymore that her future was threatened. What was enough is that she got to be with God. See, when the gospel takes root, it moves you to a point of trust that doesn't even make sense. And then he gives us another example. Abraham, 21 through 24, it says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You go back and you break this story down. And you read how this actually took place. Here's what's interesting. This, this phrase that it says. Uh, and a, it, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. When you go find that phrase, do you know what happens immediately after that phrase? He doubts God and sleeps with his mistress and has Ishmael. That's his next step. It's not for a couple chapters later that he actually trusts God enough to have Isaac and then put him on the altar. So he's not saying, what James is not saying, he's not saying, you know, if you believe God, you're going to start living this perfect life. Obviously, because the Bible says that he believed, believed, it's counted to him as righteousness, and his next move was, thanks God for saving me, it's time to go do this. But here's the deal, this is what he's saying, when you look back there, Abraham disobeyed God, he went out with his mistress, because he felt like all of his security, all of his success, all of his safety was wrapped up in a possible son. And even though God had promised it, he couldn't see it as possible, so he took matters into his own hands. Very different picture from what's going on with Isaac, isn't it? See, now he has the son. And he's not just a son, he's not just a firstborn, but he is the representation of everything that Abraham would have called success. He represents everything that Abraham would have called security. And he represents everything that Abraham would have considered safety. And what's he do? He takes Isaac. Just because God asks him to. Everything that he had messed up for. Everything that he had tried to control. He took everything his life consisted of. And he laid it on the altar. And he raises a knife. And then the angel stops him. And he says, you don't need to do this. Because now I know that you love me because you are willing to give up your only son, the son that you love so much. In other words, there was a shift in Abraham. See, back here, when he actually began to believe, you couldn't see it yet. But there was some trajectory, something that began to happen in Abraham that his security was no longer in the son that he longed for for so long. His idea of safety was no longer... And this son that he longed for for so long, his success, 
was no longer in this son that he longed for for so long. Everything he longed for, he had shifted from looking at Isaac with to now looking at God. And if it meant giving up everything that he had wanted just to be a friend of God's, it was worth it. And James is saying this. He's saying, when, when the gospel takes root in your life, yeah, you might grow in doctrine. Yes, you might grow in respect and awe. But you are going to grow in a trust like Rahab that makes no sense. And you are going to grow in affection for who he is in a way that doesn't make sense. That you are willing to let go of everything else that had defined you. And then he moves into the second sufficient sign. And I think it's got to be second, because if it's not second, then it just becomes works again. It just becomes shuddering. It just becomes fire insurance to make sure we appease God, because we are afraid and we do respect. But when we hit this point first and God begins to do something in the area of trust and affection, we begin to see ourselves as the homeless, as the broken, who are unworthy of a savior who came and died and gave his life. And we begin to look at those other than us. We begin to look at the broken and say, just as my father had compassion on me, so I'm going to have compassion on you. Not just, not just compassion feeling, but I'm going to disadvantage myself for them. So the next, the next sufficient sign is this. Empathy for the broken. Verses 16 through 17 says this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, what James is saying, faith that doesn't result in empathy for the broken is not faith at all. I mean, he, he, see, that's what, what's great about this. We, one of the things we kind of struggled with in, in teaching James is really we could do you a favor, get up here, read the text, and dismiss you early enough for breakfast. Because James is just a bottom line guy. He just says it like it is. And what James is saying is if you show up to, let's, let's modernize this, if you show up to worship service, raise your hands, feel good, tithe, and that's the extent, you don't have faith at all. He doesn't, you know... He's not politically correct and say, well, you might. He just says you don't. You don't have it. Because somebody who has faith, that faith is going to show itself in their empathy for the broken. I read this quote the other day online about empathy. Um, It says this, and I think this is what James is beginning to separate. Sympathy is feeling badly about the suffering of others. While empathy is entering in and taking on their suffering. Sarah and I call this embracing the the suffering others. Now, how do we know this is what he's saying? Because here's what's easy to do. It would be easy to read this text and he says, okay, well, I just got to give somebody a shirt who doesn't have a shirt or I got to feed somebody who's hungry. That's what it looks like he's saying. And those are pretty simple things because you and I can check the box on that. I just go to my wardrobe, find the shirt that I wear the least. If I see somebody without a shirt, I'm just going to roll down my window and give it to him. I mean, it doesn't look like he's talking about anything very deep here, like anything very sacrificial, but we got to go contextual on this. And here's what we have. We have a poor Jew talking to a poor church in a persecuted land. Are, are you with me? And so we're not talking about people who had wardrobes. We're talking about people who might have had two shirts. 
And it takes on a whole new meaning when I find somebody without clothes, but I give them the only other pair I have. It takes on a whole meaning when I find somebody who's hungry and I don't just go buy them from my plenty, but I give them from my lack. And I realize that if God doesn't come through, I'm not eating either. What James is talking about is bringing me down or bringing them up to the same level as me. And you can't do that by works. It only takes a move in the spirit because we are bent in our nature to protect number one. And James is saying, when the gospel moves in you, you will have such trust and affection for who he is that you won't worry about you, but you'll begin to see those around you. I think somebody said, love your neighbor as yourself, something like that. You'll begin to treat them like you would treat yourself. In other words, you would begin to disadvantage yourself for their sake. That's something that's really hard or weird to get our minds around. Because we live in such a prosperous society. And and I'm just going to, for this church specifically, for a church like this, it would be really easy to read this text and not let it shoot arrows through our heart. Because we serve like no other. But it's kind of like the thing in what I said earlier, just because you have sound doctrine and just because you have respect and awe doesn't mean you have saving faith, but someone who has saving faith has respect, awe, and sound doctrine. Just because you serve doesn't make you someone who has empathy for the broken, but somebody who has empathy for the broken will serve. But they will serve to such an extent that it costs them. They will be like Abraham who lays on the altar all that they had ever wished. Because they know that these people are God's too. So practically, what does this look like? I'm just going to give three ideas. I mean, we could go hours. But here's the deal. Right now in this city, we have neighborhoods and we have pockets of poverty. And we have people that are stuck in these cycles. And they're stuck in it for whatever reason. And we can use whatever excuse we want to use on why they're there, if they would work hard or whatever. The truth is they're stuck. And they're not going to be shown the message of reconciliation by people getting in a car and a bus and bussing over there for a day, then shutting their door and going back to their nice, comfortable places. And Lord knows they're not going to come to us. So what does it look like to disadvantage ourselves for those who are in need of him? I believe with all my heart, God is going to begin to call people to, because of their trust and affection in him, not in what they've earned. God is going to begin to call people to give up their suburban dream, their white picket fences, their idea of safety, and to relocate to these places of poverty in our city and live a reconciliation life around them. I believe he's going to do that. I believe he's moving in people's hearts to say, I have a better promise. I can give up this one for the sake of these. Right now, every two minutes, a young girl is abducted into sex slavery. That young girl is 8 to 18 years old. And for the next 8 to 10 years, she will be raped 10 to 30 times a day for profit.
And I believe with all my heart, God is going to begin to turn some of our hearts to look at those girls the same way we would look at our own daughters. And say, as long as I live in this world, that can't exist. And he's going to cause people to move to them. And to rescue them and to disadvantage themselves. And to interrupt their lives. And it's going to bring some baggage in. I was talking for the, to the not-for-sale people from Houston. And they had a... They have this wonderful program down there. When they go in and they don't, because they're not law enforcement, they can't go in and literally bust these rings. But the women go to these spas that they have found trafficked women at and they begin to just build relationships. Talk about messy. And they just build relationships and they leave their phone number and they leave their phone number and they leave their phone number and they come back and they don't stop. And then when they get that phone call, they don't turn them to an institution. Because that's the institution's job. They take them in their homes so that these young girls can see what a proper family looks like. And they can be embraced by the love of a mom and a dad. In this one story, this family had rescued this, this little girl. And I say little, she was probably 16, uh, 15 or 16. And they were in bed at night and they heard a rap on their door. Mrs. Mrs. Roberts can I speak to you? And Mrs. Roberts got out of bed and went to her and she said, she said, this is going to sound silly. To which Mrs. Roberts thought, I mean, you, you've been raped repeatedly for the last few days. You've got a bed that's yours. You've got a roof over your head and you're taken care of. What could be wrong? And this is what she said. She said, you know, for the last four years, I've never slept alone. She was 15 or 16, that tells you. And I don't know what to do. It's messy. That's stuff we don't think about. And I think God is going to start turning some people's heart to these little girls. And we're going to begin to look at them as God's daughters. And we won't be able to rest until we engage in the fight. Right now in the city of Austin, there are 150, 150 kids that need to be adopted. That's it. Really, that's a damning statement against the church if you think about how many churches are here and then how many Christians are in those churches. 150. The church could wipe that out. Wipe it out. Wipe it out so much so that they've got people waiting in the wing to adopt the next one that comes up. That's going to be messy. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to expose your kids to things you weren't ready to. You're going to have to bring some baggage into your home that you didn't want to bring, that you, you lived your good moral life to protect your kids from. But those are God's children. And if we're his children, then that's our family out there waiting for homes. And he has not given us our homes. He has not given us our dreams for us. I've said this before. The early church, would, their mind would be boggled by the fact that some of us have a spare bedroom. What's that? I mean, you could house people in that, and it's empty for a guest. See, James isn't pansy footing around here. He's not saying, hey, it'll be all right. You'll get it. I know it's been 20 years since you've had any growth. He's really asking people to question their own salvation. I know we don't like to talk about that. And he's saying, don't be deceived. Don't think just because you show up at church and you feel goosebumps and, and you, you know your doctrine that you've got saving faith. Because if you've got saving faith, 
you're gonna be moved with such trust and affection for who he is that your life won't make sense to those around you because you will let go of everything that has defined you in the past. And you will move into a way that you begin to disadvantage, that you begin to live your life for the broken. That's what it means to prove that you have saving faith.